House of Haller presents Tales of the House of Haller. DT's West End Tickler, read by Chris Courtney. Stories are my thing. Stories are my thing. Always were, always will be. But the first show I worked on didn't have a story. It was bound together by music, dance, production design, light and sound, and energy. But that doesn't mean that I went cold turkey. On the contrary, everywhere I looked, there were larger-than-life characters and events to feed my habit. Like being summoned to the dress circle to confront an intruder and being greeted by a bearded giant who could easily have snapped my spine between thumb and forefinger. Can I help you, sir? Don't you recognize me, my child? Uh, not exactly, sir. I am the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the one true God. There was a hundred-foot drop below. I took him by the hand and led him back down the stairs to the foyer, where he promptly decided that he wanted to ascend in glory once again. Hand in giant hand, we climbed back up the stairs, back to the hundred-foot drop, and once again I persuaded him to walk back down again. By this time, the police had arrived, and my companion, who'd been as gentle as Jesus, praise be to God, for the previous half-hour, suddenly saw red, or more likely it was the blue of their uniforms, and charged. It took four policemen to pin him to the floor, one holding down each flailing limb and it took two hours before my heartbeat returned to anything like normal. Back then, we had our own giant in residence, in Brian Blessed. As elder statesman, it fell to our old Deuteronomy, stroke, man-mountain mountaineer, to make the speech in the band room when Steve Tate, our first Gus, left for Blondell. Brian then lifted a brightly wrapped shirt box aloft with the line, I hope it fits and only the keenest eye could detect the tiniest tremors of his rock-hewn forearms. Steve obviously didn't see them, because he stepped forward to take the present and immediately fell flat on his back, the shirt box disguising a complete weightlifting set. Brian loved staying on stage to talk to the children during the interval, so Fur was bound to fly when it was suggested that, by coming out of character, he was undermining the power of both his role and the show itself. His response, rumour has it, was not out of character. I quite understand, old chap. That's a very valid point, and I'm grateful to you for pointing it out to me. But I should also point out that if you did decide to stop me talking to the audience, then I will tear your theatre down brick by brick. The third giant to cross our threshold was a young athlete and newly crowned British heavyweight champion, Frank Bruno, who was en route to the weigh-in at the London Rooms, located below the new London Auditorium. Excuse me, mate, I'm looking for the weigh-in. You've just come through it, I replied. Sorry? It's the weigh-in and the way-out. Oh, no, no, I need the weigh-in. Ah, the weigh-in. Oh, uh, that's up here, follow me. Where is this place? Frank asked as I led him across the new London foyer. It's a theatre, I told him, and he nodded uncertainly little realising that he would eventually spend more of his career on the stage than on the canvas. And then the doctor emerged who'd been booked to weigh the opponents. 
Where have you been? He snarled angrily. You're late. And then, to my utter amazement, he hit Frank on the arm. And I couldn't help wonder if this other gentle giant, smiling back good-naturedly, was really cut out for the fight game. But the biggest giant I had the very great good fortune to meet was the theatre-going public. And the stories they could tell me. It was quite a different animal back then. Monday night was fur coat night, as real theatre-goers shunned weekend performances overrun by the hoi polloi, commonly referred to as coachloads of Wigan housewives. For many of these real theatre-goers, theatre was more of a social identity than a cultural pursuit, but hey, they paid the bills, plus five pounds per Persian lamb when I was on cloakroom duty, and Mondays we had a flock of Persian lambs. Then there was their habit of charging through the doors with a fiver in their fists, not realising that the bars were four floors up, so that there were often fallen banknotes to be swept up after the incoming. The audiences changed rapidly as the new wave of British musicals broadened the spectrum of theatre-goers both domestically and internationally. And they had so many different stories that it seemed important to me to try to make sense of them, find out where they were coming from and why. For this, I needed a computer. Only the firm didn't think so back in those far distant days. Fortunately, my old film school was located in Covent Garden, and I could borrow one of their PCs before school opened each morning. Collecting data from the box offices wasn't easy, and involved a lot of manual transfer. Collecting third-party data could also be challenging. The professor running the Office of National Statistics was baffled as to why I should want to know how many passengers were flying into London each week, by day of the week and country of origin. I'm not being obstructive, he assured me. It's just that no one has asked before. The mountain of data grew rapidly from the five or six shows we had running most weeks back then. Analyzing it was also far from easy. The firm wouldn't fork out 150 quid for a sales forecasting program, so I manually de-seasonalized the data for three of our shows to find the true trends and where the shows might be in their life cycles. Every month I would present the data and my usually eerily accurate forecasts for circulation to the show administrators and board. But as one of our number, now an internationally acknowledged master in his own field, observed, these are very pretty, David, but does anyone really look at them? In fact, they did, when time allowed. But I cannot remember a time when time wasn't the enemy, and it did take time, even when I had my own computer and colleagues to help with the data collection, to distill the real juice from the numbers, the stories, and follow each twist and turn of the myriad interconnected tales of the theatre-going public through the seasons and recessions, general elections, Olympics and bombing campaigns. But it was worth the effort. And never more than one December afternoon, when I was summoned back to the office from the so-bomb Christmas lunch, an event rightly celebrated for its liberal attitude to alcohol consumption, Here I was informed that my colleagues and accounts had been crunching their numbers and had concluded that one of our long-running shows would have to close. Emboldened by a considerable amount of Christmas cheer, I replied somewhat stroppily that they were looking at the wrong numbers and out of context. The long-runner, I insisted, had many more years to run, adding that it was our latest offering that was on the downwards trajectory, in spite of a world-record-breaking advance. I then offered to provide the data, 
collected over many years to substantiate my claim, whilst adding, rather too loudly, to my boss, and if you don't believe me, come to the show with me this evening, and if half the audience isn't younger than the show, take that effing thing off. Fortunately, he did believe me. Les Mis continued for many more years, but my fair lady didn't, and my analyses subsequently became the basis for the West End's first yield management strategy, which he also backed fair play. Now, in these dark days, the stories of many theatre-goers, both domestically and internationally, are certain to change considerably, and our success as an industry will, I believe, depend on how carefully we listen to these stories and how diligently we respond to what they tell us. Mm -hmm.